The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. First line of a story is very important. First line of a story, it kind of sets the stage, it sets the, 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 the follow, what's going to follow behind it. And uh, Dickens, Charles Dickens, uh, was a master storyteller. He, uh, he's, he's famous for some of his first lines in a story. Uh, one, of his, one of his better known works, Tale of Two Cities, you guys probably all know this line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the, I was dreading having to say that word out loud. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Isn't that beautiful? This kind of sets up what the story is going to be like after that, the tale of two cities. He wrote the book David Copperfield uh, where he started out, he said, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. It kind of lets you not kind of know what's coming after it. Uh, one of his... Uh, Probably his best-known work today, though it's not one of his greater works, is A Christmas Carol, because we, well, we watch it every year, right? Um, I'm going to read just a little section from that. Uh, Marley was dead to begin with. There was no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. There's no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm about to relate. What's the important thing he's trying to get across to us about at the very beginning of the story? Marley was dead, absolutely. And, and why is that so important? Why is he laying down this, this, this groundwork about why Marley is dead? You guys can give some interaction about this. Because he sees his ghost, because he's in his home and he's, you know, there with his porridge or whatever and the, the fire's going and then he hears the chains is clinking and then Marley comes in, which would be kind of weird if it was somebody that you knew, came in with chains and the whole deal like through the door, but it doesn't really matter. The story doesn't have any great impact upon us unless we really realize, unless we really believe Marley's absolutely and actually dead as a doornail. And see, it's important to know the setup of a story in order to understand what follows after it. So what we're going to be looking at today is really important, but it's not going to really register with us until we really understand what it was like at the moment. Because whenever you, you ever read a book or watched a movie that you've already watched before, or maybe even worse yet, like you watch a movie or read a book that somebody told you about already, like they told you it was great, and then you go to the movie and you watch it and it doesn't quite live up to what the person with the build it as, or, or you go to watch a movie even better yet, and everybody around you said, this movie is terrible, you should not waste any time to see it, but for some reason, you had to kind of show up, like last week, Meg and I went to the, this was a terrible movie, but Meg and I went to the movies, and uh, there wasn't really anything showing that we wanted to see, and we hadn't seen the Lego movie yet, we wanted to save that for the kids, and... Uh, I, I used to watch uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. Anybody ever watched that show? When I, and uh, they came up with this new movie out. It's called A Peabody and Sherman. And uh, so we, we, Megan and I sat down, the two of us, on date night and watched Mr. Peabody and Sherman. And at the end of it, I was like smiling because it brought back all the memories. And Megan was like, well, that was interesting. <laughs> 
And I felt like I really wasted a date night opportunity with my wife. In hindsight, I see how that wasn't the most romantic movie to take her to, but it just kind of seemed like a good idea at the point, at the time. Um, But what somebody tells you or what you already know about a story always influences your experience of it. If somebody told you it's bad and you watch it, uh, then it doesn't have many expectations to live up to, right? It doesn't have to be a great movie like, oh, it was better than I expected it to be. Or if you hear great things, it's not quite as good. Or if you know the the punchline already, you know the ending, you read the book and it doesn't quite live up to it, it always affects our understanding of the story. The story that we're going to be reading today... In fact, the whole book of Mark that we've been looking at, as we've been discussing as a, that Jesus is a man worth following in the book of Mark, that he's a man who's worth following, he's a king who's worth serving, and he's a God who's worth worshiping. What you think about Jesus and what you think about his story absolutely and always flavors what you're going to get out of it. There's three different kind of standpoints that we in this room could be coming at the story from. Uh, one idea could be that maybe you're a Christian or you've been around church a long time and you, your understanding of who Jesus is is that Jesus is Lord and God. He is 100% God, 100% man, came from God, died of a virgin. I mean, sorry, that doesn't make any sense. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a death, a sacrifice for my sins, and I worship him as my Savior and my Lord. And if you, that's what you believe, then when you read this story and we go through this, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flavor what you see. But you're going to be looking at it from, from our standpoint back to the, when it happened. Another kind of standpoint you can have, another viewpoint, is that Jesus was a good, a wise man, perhaps a, a holy man, a peaceful man, a loving man. Um, but the miracles and the whole resurrection deal and the water to wine and the dead people to life, like those are kind of fables that have kind of been added to his story around by people who, who worship him. Like Jesus was a good guy. He's a lot of, got a, a lot of good things to say that we should listen to that should affect how I live. But, you know, the, the whole kind of whole God thing and raised from the dead and, you know, miracles and walking on water, that, that absolutely can't be true. Uh, that, if, you think, if that's what you think about Jesus, that's going to flavor the story that we read. And what I haven't told you guys in a long time, I, I know I, I'm like jug, chugging water every time I get up here. I have to take this medicine that makes me a mouth dry out. And if I don't drink water, then you guys get really grossed out because I get all like the spittle and the <laughs> like stuff I'm caked in my mouth and face. And um, again, that just gets distracting and just plain gross. Um, <laughs> The third kind of kind of attitude or thought you could have about Jesus and who he is is that Jesus was a purveyor of the most dangerous thing in the history of humanity, and that's religion. A lot of people believe that. You may be here and you believe that. That religion, whether Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or whatever, it's like a crutch that humanity uh, wore for a while. But uh, all the great wars, all the great arguments, all the great fights like over Thanksgiving dinner or between countries has always been a base about religion, always worked back to religion. So Jesus was a dangerous man who was a purveyor of religion. So you could think he's Lord, you could think he's a good guy, or you could think he was a dangerous guy, but whatever you think about that is going to flavor what we see here coming up. But to really understand the story, we've got to start back at the very at the beginning and try to look at it as best we can with the fresh eyes, the eyes of the, that the people would have had as they experienced this story. Today we're in Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on the 
screen behind me, at least I, I say that confidently at a church plant, you never know what's actually going to show up on the screen behind me or what's going to go on as part of the fun. Now let's go to church today and see, see what happens. We showed up today and the internet wasn't working. We had to find a, a way around. I had to set a phone up at a hot spot and then it wasn't working. It was, it was, it's, it's every, every week. Uh, so Jesus, first of all, like so as Charles Dickens sets up the story of the Christmas carol, first of all, you have to understand Marley was dead as a doornail. Jesus was a poor, uneducated, peasant carpenter from the backwater town in a very forgotten area of the world. Palestine, Israel, it was not a very important area in the Roman Empire. Uh, nobody was looking over there. It wasn't like New York City. It wasn't uh, Los Angeles. It wasn't the hot spot to go to or get to. It was sort of a forgotten kind of the armpit of the Roman Empire, kind of hidden over there in the, in the country. And Jesus wasn't somebody who, like at his birth, even though you would think like he had the star and the whole angel thing, you would think people would be expecting big things. But he was like the best kept secret in Palestine. He grew up for 30 years. He was a carpenter. He was just a poor, uneducated peasant. Not a whole lot going for him in the middle of a backwater town in Israel. And he starts his ministry and some crazy things start happening as we read in the first like eight, nine, ten chapters. Like he goes and he starts proclaiming the kingdom of God has come and he starts praying for people and they get healed and uh, people start following him. People are, uh, have, like, have demons and he prays for them and the demons leave and the whole place is going crazy. He's got this following that's following all around like the Grateful Dead all around the Sea of Galilee. And now he starts to make his turn and he starts to travel to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, when he, when he starts his, his turn, his travel, his, his road to Jerusalem, we said a few weeks ago he started that road. It's like the road to Easter that we're on. When he starts on that road, he starts to change his tune. He doesn't say, like, everybody thinks that because he's, he's got a whole lot of stuff going for him. Like, lame are, are walking, the blind are seeing. Like, they think, like, he's, he's got this big following. Like, he's going to take over the nation of Israel. And he's going to throw off the Roman Empire. And he's going to be the king who's come. And he's going to sit on a throne. And what he says, instead of saying, hey, guys, get your, get your swords, get your slingshots, get your spears, get those bazookas you've been hiding in your, in your closet at home and bring them, we're going to take them on. He says, no, I'm going to come as a, as a suffering servant to die. And he makes this return, he makes this road on the road to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling on his way to Jerusalem, Let's see what happens. Because you, know, you won't really appreciate what happens here unless you realize, like Marley was dead as a doornail, that Jesus was just a poor peasant. He didn't have any royal birth. Because see, there, there were really three important people in the history of Israel, three important offices in the, in the history of Israel. There was uh, the prophet, there was a priest, and there was a king. So any important person in the history of Israel would fill at least one of those offices. So, so God gave the king. That's pretty obvious, right? He was over the nation. He ruled the nation. He was, in, he was important. He had been anointed. He chased the lineage back to David and back to Saul. Anointed by God to be the king over Israel. Then you had the prophet who you guys probably know the prophet is, He's, he would speak the words of God, right? He would come to the nation of Israel and he would speak. This is what God is saying. He would tell them what God is saying. 
And then there were the, the, then there were the priests. And they were the ones who, their job was anointed by God, again, to sort of stand between God and man. So they were the ones that offered the sacrifices for the sins of the nation of Israel. Day by day and year by year, they offered the sacrifices. And so you have the prophet who spoke the words of God. You have the king who ruled in the name of God. And you had the priest who stood between God and man. Sort of like this bridge making, representing man making sacrifices in order to appease God's anger against our sin. And representing God back to man. Prophet, priest, and king. But Jesus was by birth none of those things. At this point, they think that when Jesus, a few weeks ago, we covered, like, whenever he asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Like, some people were saying you might be a prophet, but then other people were saying, like, you also might be the devil. So they hadn't even figured out what Jesus was yet. He was either a prophet, like he was speaking some words of God because some crazy things were happening, or they said, like, you are demonically possessed and you are a crazy dude we don't want anything to do with. You have to understand that before we enter the story. Then Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they, that's Jesus and the people who were traveling with him, the disciples, the whole entourage, they were traveling to Jerusalem. When they drew near to Jerusalem to, and I've just found out this past week, I've been pronouncing, I I usually like to pronounce like Bible uh, names uh, like very confidently, like I know what I'm saying. And so nobody really questions you, but apparently I've been saying Beth Page and it's not Beth Page, it's like Beth Pagi or something like that. And uh, I don't don't know, but... That's a little bonus. You can write that down. Beth Pagi, and you can use it in some trivia at some point if it ever comes up. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Beth Pagi and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. I, I got to tell you, that's a pretty, that's a pretty confident. That's a pretty, uh, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement to make to somebody. It's like, it's like you're telling somebody, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to, go to Sockesty. And outside the Domino's Pizza, outside Sockets Tea, there's going to be a 97 Mazda 626. And the keys are going to be inside it. And I want you, actually, actually, better yet, the key is, the door is going to be open. The key is going to be under the mat inside. I want you to go in, pick up the key under the mat, crank the Mazda 626. And if anybody asks you, hey, what are you doing stealing the car? Just tell them, hey, the master wants it. And then bring it to me. That's a pretty bold statement. It says, verse 4, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. They pulled the, the key under the mat and they cranked the car. Some of those standing there said, said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? In other words, what are you doing stealing this car, stealing this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. Isn't that kind of crazy? You know, you're stealing a car, stealing a, a young colt, baby horse or a baby donkey. Think it's probably a donkey. Don't know for certain. It's going to just take it. Somebody asks you, hey, what are you doing with that? It's not yours. And you say, hey, the master told me he wants this, and he'll bring it back. And they say, all right, that's fine. Because you see, 
when true authority shows up on the scene, everything has to reorient around true authority. It, where, where you work, I don't know where you, where you work, but if the owner shows up and like he walks up to your desk and you have your computer and you have your pens and pencils and you have it all nice and neat the way you want it. You guys seen the Office Max or Office D commercial where the guy's like disinfecting everything and he finally gets it ready and the guy sneezes on him. We, say, we joke and we say that's, that's Dale's workplace. He's all, he's germaphobe over there, wiping everything down, making sure everything's all nice and neat. But you got it just the way you want it, just the way you want it. And the owner of the whole place walks in. It's not the coworker. Coworker comes in, takes a pencil or comes in and messes with your stuff like there's going to be we're going to have an altercation here because you're messing with my stuff. But when the owner of the business walks in, you may have everything just the way you want it. He comes in, he moves the pencil case over here, or he grabs a pencil and walks out the room. You're not going to call him out, are you? Because when true authority walks up, shows up, everybody has to reorient around him. You see, even though he was a poor peasant who had no name, Nobody knew his deal. He was on no marquee. He was, no, he was not, a, not a big deal. He wasn't sitting in the Oval Office somewhere. He didn't have a big bank account. He wasn't rolling a nice Rolls Royce. He just happened to be the God who created the heavens and the earth, who owns it all. Whenever he showed up and he says, I want that cult, bring him to me, nobody questions it. And they brought the colt to Jesus. And again, remember, he's a poor peasant carpenter. But he's coming to Jerusalem, you see, the capital city. So what happens when a king enters a capital city? He comes in and pray. He comes in on a mount. And the people celebrate because the king is returning to the city that is his. Jesus is riding in on the colt, even though it's Jesus, a poor peasant. He's riding on a baby donkey, which isn't exactly the steed a mighty warrior king would ride on back into his capital city whenever he does. Something happens. The people respond. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means, oh, save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Because, see, when the king shows up, when the ruler of heaven and earth comes into his capital city, people cannot help but to respond when true Authority shows up. We cannot help but orient ourselves around him. It, de it demands it like a compass finds its way to true north. It cannot help it. Unless you take apart the, the compass, it will always point to true north. It commands it. It draws it. There's no way to do it. Like, like two, two strong magnets that are pulling themselves together. You cannot help but to happen because when true authority shows up, everything around it has to reorient itself to the true authority. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, which is where the priest serves, right? And when he had looked around at everything, it was as if it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He, he came in, the king has returned to a city, comes and looks over the temple. He's sizing up, seeing like you would, maybe you would come home after a long trip. It might take a little walk around your house, see, make sure everything's okay. 
what's going on here. And on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing at the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. This is kind of a weird story. So he walks up to a tree. It's not time for there to be figs yet. We, we, we think it's probably the time of year where there would be these, because like, the like, little baby figs would come out before the leaves would even come on. And so some people would actually pick them off and eat them. Uh, um, but So that might be what's going on. We're not 100% sure. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jump down to verse 20. We're going to come back to the verses we just skipped. Verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, so it's the next day, they're, they're walking back by, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. You see, the, the king had come back to a city and the prophet had come. The true king had come and the true prophet came. See, the prophet spoke the words of God and when Jesus spoke to the fig tree and he cursed it, the fig tree had no choice but to die. It didn't just like start to wither. Whenever he came back, the whole thing was withered all the way to its root. The true, the true prophet had come and whenever he speaks, even nature obeys. We've covered stories so far in Mark wherever he, he speaks to the storm. The storm is quiet. He decides that like water isn't going to like, he's not going to sink in water. He decides he's not going to sink in the water and so he walks on it and it holds him up. He's the true prophet. He's in control. He created the heavens and the earth. And whenever he speaks, because he spoke the world into existence, when he speaks, it cannot help but to obey him. The true prophet had shown up when true authority shows up. Everything around it has to orient itself to him. Whenever he said, may no one ever eat of you again, the tree had no choice but to wither up and die. And then look at verse 15. And they came back to Jerusalem. This is the day after they first saw the, the tree and he cursed it. And they came back to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. Remember, he's a poor, peasant, uneducated man. From the armpit of the region of Israel, Galilee. And when he entered the temple began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So you see, uh, the, the temple was a great big giant, the temple of Herod. It would have still been under construction at this time. It was a wonder of the world. And so there were different parts of the temple that, that outside of the temple, the exterior t temple area when you would go in was 35 acres large. So this isn't just like a, like a nice little church building. This is like super duper mega church outside. It's got this whole courtyard around it. And the outside area as you entered it was called the court of the Gentiles. 
And so then that's a large 35-acre area. And the idea of this, so the idea is you, you keep on going into inner areas of the temple is that fewer and fewer people can go. So the next, the next area that you could go was the, the court of women. And then so that obviously that's where the women could go. The Jewish women could go. No, no Gentiles could pass that point. There was a sign up, in fact, the entry uh, inside the actual temple that said, uh, be, no Gentiles pass this point. Uh, basically, if you pass this point, you will die. You, you, you are responsible for your own death. That's the basic gist of the, of the message, which is a, quite a strong warning, isn't it? So you, you walk in, Jewish women can go in that area, and then you had the court of men inside that, so the Jewish men could go inside that, and then the next area, only the priests themselves could go. And the whole idea of God, because see, God gave Israel the plan on how to set the, the temple up. The whole idea of this large 35-acre parcel outside the temple is called, well, outside the temple proper, is, is called the, the court of the Gentiles. The whole idea is that this was supposed to be an area that those who were not yet Jews could come and they could pray. But yet... At this time, and this time, this time of the day of, of this uh, of this region, they had started uh, so you could only use a certain type of currency inside the temple because you had to you had to you, had to, you would show up and you didn't like bring your own sacrifice. You had to buy a sheep or a goat or a pigeon or whatever it was that you had to that you had to sacrifice. And so you had to you had to exchange money. You guys ever exchange money like you're overseas or whatever? And so you had to exchange your dollar bill for their for the for the temple currency. And so you would go in and there would be a lot of money changers, like a little bank tellers set up with tables and you would have to go, um, you have to go change your money and get the right money and then you would go to these places that had the, the animals that you had to sacrifice, the sheep and the goats, the pigeons and the, you know, what now that they, the doves and all the things that they sacrifice and then you had to go buy that and then you would bring that sacrifice to the priests. And so they had a nice little kind of deal going on. It was like a giant bazaar in the temple. In, the, in this court of the Gentiles. And so there were animals ble bleeding and neighing and buying and chirping and cooing and whatever all the animals are doing. And then the people, you know, calling out to each other and calling out to potential customers. And there's a sound of business going on back and forth. And so what was supposed to be an area of prayer, an area for people who weren't, who weren't Jews to come in and hear and learn and listen and see who God really was and to pray and to, to, to have their eyes turned towards God it was a big giant like, like flea market bazaar going on all around the place. People buying and selling and sheep bleeding and, you know, I'm sure there's like a smell around. There's all kinds of things going on, all the 35 acres of this, of this temple court. And when Jesus showed up, the true priest had shown up. We saw the king returns to his capital city. We saw the prophet, the true prophet comes. He's com he speaks the words of God. He's command over nature. Now he shows it to the temple and the true priest has arrived on the scene. This is the only time that we receive Jesus just get, he gets angry. I don't know what your picture of Jesus was growing up. We talked about it before. Like uh, most of our pictures of Jesus is like this nice guy who always has like a creepy smile on his face. You know the pictures that I'm talking about, right? 
like you, you seem like, like it's almost like a Thomas Kincaid picture. Like he's, he's around this kind of soft light around. Maybe you have it in your home. Don't be, don't be offended if I'm describing a picture that's over your, over your couch. So this, I'm just saying this is the picture that we've also kind of got. He's probably, and so Jesus is kind of, maybe has like soft kind of blondish hair. He, he looks like he's like from Southern California kind of deal. And he, and he, and he, he kind of floats around. You know what I'm saying? Like he floats around and he has his arms open like this all the time for some reason. And he's always got, he, he never really looks you in the eye, but has this creepy smile because Jesus is smiling all the time for some reason. And he's real nice. He's a nice guy, isn't he? But the Jesus that we're talking about here, he was a poor peasant. He would have been a carpenter. He would have had calloused hands. He would have known hard work. He would have been actually more like sunbaked from working out, from doing things, from building things, doing the deal. And he shows up at the temple, and he's not a nice, sweet Jesus who's like, for some reason, has a lamb around his neck and like nice white clothes and is smiling all the time and talks real sweetly to everybody. Jesus, the man, the man shows up to the court of Gentiles, and he sees that what God intended to be a house of prayer for all people, for Jews and Gentiles alike to, to think about and to see how beautiful and marvelous and amazing and glorious and worthy of all praise and honor and Dominion is God, the only one true God. The, the place that they were just supposed to see that when he shows up, they're exchanging currency and they're making money and they're selling the doves and they're selling the, the goats and they're selling the sheeps all over the place. And Jesus, it just goes all over him. He cannot help himself. He, the priest, the true priest has come back and he's going to exert his ownership, his authority over what is truly his. And so what seems to happen next is like a real crazy, a real, like, like he, he's kind of like he loses it. And you're like, you don't think of Jesus is destructive, but Jesus is destructive because what was meant to be a place for people to see, hear, think about had their hearts turned towards God is now something else. It's turned to something inward. It's turned to a place to make money. It's turned to a place to make myself feel better. It's turned to a place, turned to a place like Gentiles couldn't even get there. So like Jews always felt better than the Gentiles. Like some Christians feel better than themselves because they're nice people, but non-Christians. And so they could... They could walk by the Jews and they thought they were dogs on their way to worship the one true God. They felt good about themselves. They felt puffed up and prideful rather than being humbled to the fact that God of all creation would pick them when they did not deserve it. Just like he picked you and me. If you're a Christian today, he picked you and me when we did not deserve it a single bit. And he took the place that had been become a place of empty worship place to make money and a place to make my feel, myself feel better about myself rather than to feel awed and humbled by the great and mighty God who somehow stoops himself to love me when I do not deserve it. And that's why when Jesus shows up on the scene, he goes into a holy fury and he moves from the man, not the sweet Jesus with the list. When I'm talking about the man, he goes from table to date to table, from stall to stall, and he's turning somehow. I don't know how he did it. It's 35 acres. Did he do it one part? Did he like did he have this holy like fit and he went through the whole place? I don't know, but he turns the place upside down so much so he's throwing the temp he's throwing the tables upside down, he's throwing the chair, he's throwing the stalls, you know, nobody's wanting to stand in his way. The man 
in verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He took control of his temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Because, see, when true authority shows up, you have to orient yourselves around it. The true priest had shown up. And the chief priests and the scribes, verse 18, heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. They feared him because he had come, he was turning their system upside down because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And then jump ahead, we're going to cover this last little section here. Verse 27, and they came again, as Jesus and his disciples, to Jerusalem. And as he was walking the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. They're trying to trick him here. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you about what authority I do these things. And so he asked them this kind of a riddle almost. Was, was the baptism of John, this John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say it's from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. So these are the chief priests. These are the true, like seeming authorities of the of the of the temple in the area. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, when true authority shows up, it forces reorientation like a compass to true north. And we have one choice. All of us. Christian, non-Christian, all of us here today, every person that's on the face of the globe, right now we all have one choice. We can bow to the king, who's the rightful king, or we can try to fight him. But there's only one choice. Tim Keller says, you can either crown him or crucify him. That's the only choice you have. True authority forces reorientation. We only can respond one of two ways. One decision. I wonder how many of us consistently and constantly ask Jesus, by what authority do you do this in my life? Have you had some circumstances happen in your life? Maybe you ask God what in the world is going on. Do you think like, do you think about your life? Think about your day-to-day, week-to-week life. Do you kind of roll through life just kind of picking and choosing what you're going to do and what you're not going to do according to how you feel that moment or what you think is right or what you think is true? Or do you recognize that Jesus Christ is the true authority of heaven and earth? He is the true king, he's the true prophet, and he's the true priest. And he deserves all glory, all dominion, all worship, all praise, and all obedience. 
and I have to, my job is to orient my life around him, not figure out how he's going to orient, orient the world around me. How many of our prayers are about, God, orient the world around me. Make my life easier. Make my life better. Make people respond to me the way I want them to respond. Make, make my life smoother. Instead of reorienting myself around him and his will, I want him to reorient himself and the world around me. Jesus comes on the scene, in this scene, and he comes on the scene of our lives and our hearts and exerts his true authority over all the fake authorities. The fake authorities at the, at the temple who were forgotten who God was, they were using empty religion and they were feeling better about themselves because they weren't the Gentiles. True kings who are running around thinking they're controlling everything and they can decide what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. He comes and he exerts true authority over our lives. But think of how he did it as we close here. He does so by entering the capital city of Jerusalem as a king but what was different about how he entered the city as a king? He entered the city on a lowly, young, baby donkey. Did he enter the king as a conquering king to sit on his throne, take control with his army surrounding him? No, he entered the, he entered the city where he knew that he would be unfairly tried, unfairly arrested, unfairly flogged, unfairly nailed to a cross, and killed. That's a different kind of king, isn't it? He does so as a priest who would come and tear down the temple that had become a den of thieves because he said, he said, I'm going to, uh, in another, another part he says, uh, he looks at the temple and he says, uh, the temple at it needs to be, it's going to be torn down. And it's going to be rebuilt again in three days. And they didn't understand what he was talking about. But it says that later on that he was, they realized he was talking about himself. He came as the temple where people would see who God was, where God's presence was among his people. Because that was the significance of the temple. That's where God's presence was among his people. He, would, he came as the priest who would lay down his life. And die, the temple would be broken down and risen again in three days so that his presence would be among his people and not trapped inside the walls of that building any longer. And he does so as the prophet who curses the fruitless, we think it may have been a diseased tree. He curses the fruitless, diseased tree. But then think what's going to happen in just days after this story. He's going to hang on a tree and he's going to absorb the curse that was due to you and me. Because you and I are, by nature, we're fruitless trees. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. The Bible says, curse is every man who hangs on a tree. And speaking about looking forward to Jesus, the Messiah, who would pay the debt that you and I could not pay. He's the king who enters 
the city where he will die on the back of a donkey. He's the priest who curses the tree, though he's going to die on one as a cursed man days later. He's the priest who comes in and clears out the temple in order to, so people can see who God is, but knowing that he is going to be the temple that's going to be torn down and die in order so that his presence would be among his people. See, Jesus is our king, he's our priest, and he's our prophet. And he is, and his actions both demand and inspires our submission and our worship, our devotion and our love. Listen to that. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and king whose actions both demand, because he is the prophet, the priest, and king, he's true authority. But the way he exerts his true authority as a humble, suffering servant not only demands our devotion, demands our attention, demands our love, demands our worship, but it inspires our devotion, it inspires our love, it inspires our worship, it inspires our submission. Because he's a lowly king who came and gave himself for us. True authority forces reorientation. Like a compass to true north. We can try to fight it or we can bow to it. But when you see the way he did it, there's really only one choice. The loving, lowly, king, priest, and prophet who gave himself for us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.